musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, how are you doing today? Hopefully, uh, you aren't too tightly connected to your television set, because uh, the screwheads who are pretending to run this country are doing their best to convince everybody that the sky is falling. Luckily for us, uh, fellow saloner Patrick T. hasn't uh, panicked, but instead uh, sent us some of his hard-earned cash, which is uh, definitely going to be used to keep the Psychedelic Salon coming your way each week. So uh, thanks for your donation, Patrick. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. And uh, Patrick also sent a message that is uh, similar to quite a few emails that come in each week. Here's, here's part of what he said. Lorenzo, thank you for the Psychedelic Salon. It is really such a treasure trove of information. I've been listening every day on my commute. I just attended the Horizons Conference in New York on inspiration from listening to the Salon. It was great. I heard Alex and Allison Gray and Encyclopedia Pictura and was really inspired. My interest is in psychedelic art, research, and therapy, especially as an adaptive technology for people with disabilities. I am particularly interested in psychedelic therapy, MDMA and LSD. Do you have any general recommendations for how one might go about finding local information on that? How one might go about researching specific therapists? Can you help me or give me some general ideas? I really wish I could, Patrick, uh, but finding the others, uh, particularly in the climate of fear that we are immersed in these days, well, it isn't easy. To begin with, uh, most people are afraid to even uh, stand up and be honest about how they feel about psychedelic medicines. I know that when I was still caught in the web of corporate America, that I seldom voiced my opinion on these matters. Yet, uh, once I did start to make little statements here and there, I was uh, very pleasantly surprised at how quickly the others found me. Now, as to uh, finding people who are still providing psychedelic psychotherapy, uh, that's extremely difficult, uh, mainly because anyone providing these important and valuable services is not only risking their career, uh, they're also risking imprisonment. Now, the uh, good news is that thanks to the impressive work that Michael and Annie Mithoffer and their staff has been doing uh, on the study of MDMA as a tool to be used to help people recover from traumas such as uh, rape and war, well, it looks like uh, they may receive approval for a much larger study in the not-too-distant future. And uh, there are some other possibilities uh, for expanding psychedelic studies. Uh, I know that Charlie Grobe is planning on uh, expanding his work on psilocybin, uh, using it to alleviate anxiety associated with uh, cancer and other possibly terminal diseases. So uh, we should all be looking out for news of these and other studies that are gradually gaining a little traction in the research community. I wish I could give you a, a better uh, answer than that, Patrick, but uh, for now that's about all we have to go on. But thanks again for the donations and uh, particularly for your kind words. Uh, it's always nice to hear from fellow saloners who uh, thank me for the podcast. Even though I've uh, pretty much had to give up responding to email, uh, I do make a point of reading everything that comes in. And uh, I'm here to tell you that uh, all of your kind words are very much appreciated. Now, uh, as for today's podcast, uh, the first thing I should mention is uh, something that was raised in an email from Taryn Healer, who uh, had this to say about last week's podcast with Robert Anton Wilson. And uh, here's part of what he had to say. 
I really like this story, but did anything else crystallize at the end? Or did Bob just start talking nonsense after a while? I ask because the recording seemed to end abruptly. Well, you caught me there, Taryn Healer. Uh, as you guessed, uh, yes, I uh, did more or less cut Bob off when the first side of the tape came to an end. But the good news is that it actually did come at a good point because uh, he completely changed the topic and began talking about extending human lifespan to uh, several centuries. As usual, uh, I've got a few things to say about that myself, but uh, first let's join Robert Anton Wilson sometime back in 1986, I believe, and hear what he was thinking back then about how long we humans might be able to live if all goes according to plan. So, as human lifespan has been increasing from the beginning, and uh, now we're learning how to change intelligence too, it should not come as a big shock that there are a lot of researchers saying, how far can human lifespan be extended? And nobody knows because the research is uh, just uh, in its infancy, but already there have been spectacular successes with experimental animals. Uh, the uh, age of experimental rats has been doubled in one experiment. The age of fish has been tripled in another experiment. But if we had the life, if we had the immunological system at 80 that we have at 20, we might live 200 years, 500 years. Nobody knows. There have been predictions by researchers in the field that lifespan can be extended to 500 years. Others have predicted to 1,000 years. And then an interesting factor enters the equation. If lifespan can be extended to even 140 years, to take a conservative figure, just doubling what it is now, and remember what it is now is already doubled what it was before the French Revolution. If it could be extended to 140 years, then everybody who uh, would ordinarily die in 70 years will be around for 140 years. And that means, in the case of most of us, we'll be around for over 100 years more of scientific investigation into longevity. Uh, with 100 years more investigation, who knows what breakthroughs could happen. Uh, maybe we will learn how to transfer consciousness into silicon. If we can find a way to translate the structure of my brain into silicon chips, then my consciousness would be in the silicon chips, and since silicon is potentially immortal, I would be immortal. Is that science fiction? Well, the atom bomb was science fiction once. Uh, I remember when uh, I was in high school, I remember a lot of experts saying we'd never be able to reach the moon, and I remember other experts saying, oh, we can reach the moon, but it will take at least a hundred years. Uh, so if you look at the longevity revolution from either a radical or a conservative perspective, you look at it radically, nobody knows what we might do by the year 2000 since knowledge is accelerating faster all the time. Look at it conservatively and say that all we're going to do is increase lifespan to maybe uh, twice what it is now. That means we'll be living through so much more, so much more history and so many more breakthroughs that we have no idea how far it can be extended. It is quite thinkable that there are people in this audience right now who will never die. That's, uh, that's a statement that can never be made before in history. So, as we are moving off the planet and going into space and lifespan is extending and we're learning how to change our consciousness, we are becoming an entirely different species. But that shouldn't be too much of a shock. We became an entirely different species in the way we behave, the way we related to one another and in our whole cosmology when we graduated from being hunters and gatherers to the stage of the first Bronze Age agricultural civilizations. And we went through an equally astounding 
metamorphoses when we went from the agricultural age to the industrial age and we're already in the process of a tremendous change now as we're going into the computer age no, nobody quite knows where it's taking us except it's taking us to entirely new dimensions of organization and possibility uh, going back to the first uh, amoeboid creatures in the ocean and their path up to the amphibians and on to the saurians and onwards to the mammals it has taken uh, four and a half uh, million years to get where we are now but we're moving faster all the time uh, the direction of evolution seems very likely to be that, that life is moving to the position where it will be omnipotent where life can do anything it wishes to do and in general you can see that even on the surface of a primitive planet like this from the time life started here it has spread itself all over the planet taking whatever form it has to take to adapt to any condition life has gotten to the top of the Himalayas there are life forms up there life has gotten to little America uh, look at the sidewalk closely when you're taking a walk and you see little bits of grass coming up between the cracks. Life has found a way to break through the concrete. Life seems to have a tremendous Dionysian exuberance about it, uh, what Nietzsche called a will to power. And life seems to be aiming at nothing less than the attainment of divinity. Uh, we, are, uh, we are in the process, we are part of the process of evolution from amoebas to cosmic immortals. What are cosmic immortals? Co cosmic immortals are creatures who live anywhere in the universe they damn well please, travel as fast as they want to, and never die. That's the old-fashioned, that's the idea of a god. A god goes anywhere, never dies, and moves as fast as a god wants to move. That is what we are evolving toward gradually. Most futurists do not make predictions that outrageous because futurists are trying to become respectable. Uh, those, of you, those of you who heard me in Boulder last night know that I have no desire to become respectable. I, I, am, uh, I am in a much more dangerous business than that. I am trying to provoke new thoughts. Now, I, I have just given you an outline of history and a projection forward of where I think it's going. That is my reality tunnel. That is the way I put the facts together. Anybody here can put the facts together and make a different gestalt out of them, a different reality tunnel, and make different projections. As a matter of fact, the Club of Rome is a group of Italian futurists who are very good at examining the trajectories of history and concluding that in ten years everything is going to go smash and the civilization will collapse entirely. Uh, since we don't know what the future is until the future gets at us, and the future only comes at us one day at a time, which gives us a chance to adjust to it. Imagine if it arrived a year at a time. <laughs> Fortunately, we only have to deal with it one day at a time. Since nobody knows what it's going to be, it seems that it is one of those areas which in sociology is known as uh, the area of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, if people have a definite belief about what the future is going to be, that tends to produce that type of future. On the individual level, if you decide I can't pass the examination, you won't study. Why bother studying if you know you can't pass? So that'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You'll fail the examination. If you think they wouldn't hire me for a job like that, you won't go in for the job interview. On the other hand, somebody who thinks I'm just right for that job and I'll make them realize it goes in and gets the job. So a great many things are created by self-fulfilling prophecies. So I think the Club of Rome, by creating this prophecy that the whole of civilization is going to collapse in 10 years and we're going to be wrecked and we'll have no energy and we'll be back in the dark ages, they have created a momentum which can very well lead to that conclusion. 
I think by the same token, the kind of optimistic future scenario that I've been outlining can also be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If a lot of people think, yeah, I would like to live indefinitely, maybe you're not ready for immortality yet. Maybe the thought is metaphysically staggering. But if you think, yeah, I'd like to live a couple of hundred years. I don't want to die when I'm only 70 and just starting to figure things out. And you think, yeah, I would like to get smarter. And yes, I would like to travel across galaxies like Captain Kirk. If you get excited by visions like that, and if enough people get excited by visions like that, and if you see far off ahead of those visions, the evolution to cosmic immortality, then that too can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. It may have been innate in evolution from the beginning, or it may just have been invented by Nietzsche and a few other philosophers since Nietzsche, uh, but it is possible. And the more people who are excited about it and believe in it and put their energy in it, the more likely it is to happen. <clears throat> I think at this point I will have a question period. I wish, I wish some of the fundamentalists showed up uh, tonight. They could uh, announce that this is Satan that you hear speaking to you. This is obviously an anti-Christian message. It doesn't say anything about hell, sin, damnation, doom, or anything like that. So I must be serving the dark one. But they're not here. Is there anybody else who has any interesting objections to raise to this kind of fantasy? Does anybody have any questions then? Yes? Uh, it seems to me that some of the apparent increase in lifespan is an evolution caused by the reduction in child mortality. What is the actual change in lifespan of people who reach the age of 10 from then on? Because, you know, there was a time when something like 6 out of 10 kids died before they reached the age of 5. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's, that, that, that is part of the explanation of the average life expectancy increasing, but it's not the whole explanation because if you read uh, books about, say, the 18th century, you will see that not only were a lot of kids dying very young, but people were dying in their 20s all the time because smallpox came around every couple of years and that killed off about half the population. Then they'd start to recover and back would come the smallpox again or another type of plague, with cholera or one thing or another. And in the 19th century, you find the same thing. You find people are getting knocked off in their 30s by the pollution in the rivers of England is poisoning whole towns and so on. So it's not just infant mortality. There was high mortality between 0 and 10 and between 10 and 20 and between 20 and 30 and between 30 and 40 and hardly anybody survived beyond 40. Some did, but there are always a, few, a lucky few with superior genes or extra good luck or something. Uh, so you do find cases of 70, 80, 90-year-old people in earlier epochs, but you don't find them at the same rate. Even in recent years, we find the number of uh, people over 100 in England in 1976 was 300. In 1986, it's 3,000. And uh, you found a lot of... Uh, you, you wouldn't find earlier in... Uh, history, people like George Burns doing comedy acts at the age of 80, and so on. So it's more than just the decline in infant mortality. There's been a, de there's been a decline in death at all ages. Uh, next question. Well, I think these pendulum swings are...
kind of local and short-lived. If you look at the pattern that I've been talking about, the doubling of knowledge, if you look at history from 1750 to the present, you've got these pendulum swings of liberalism and conservatism, but the overall pattern has been one of increasing lifespan, increasing literacy throughout the Western world and then throughout the Third World, too, in the last couple of decades, in increasing optimism through most parts of the population. Surveys show that uh, Americans have very little faith in their government these days, and people who only register that, who only uh, ask that question in polls, say, well, everybody is cynical and disillusioned. But then if you ask people what they think about their own lives, it turns out in polls over and over that people are more optimistic than they've ever been at any period of taking polls in the past. More people are more confident about their own ability to solve their own problems and make a good life for themselves. So I think the general, if you look from 1750 to the present, all these local conservative backswings are only a minor part of the melody. The, the, the general tendency is like Beethoven's Ninth. It's moving higher and higher and louder and louder and faster and faster. And uh, each conservative backswing is less conservative than the previous conservative backswing. Ronald Reagan is not nearly as conservative as the conservatives we had in the 1930s. He has never attempted to abolish social security. He has never attempted to return to pure isolationism. Uh, just read, the, rem just read the, um, the polemics written by Republican conservatives in the 1930s and compare them with Ronald Reagan's type of conservatism. Nobody, nobody really wants to go back to the conservatism of the past. It really is dead. Next question. The Dionysian, uh, uh, quoting, uh, bringing in the Dionysian uh, idea from Nietzsche, uh, the Dionysian, the, the way Nietzsche uses Dionysian, it means ecstatic, as distinguished from Apollonian, which is rational. And if you read Nietzsche carefully, what he's basically trying to describe in those poetic metaphors are what we nowadays think of as linear. Uh, left brain thinking which is the Apollonian and right brain holistic thinking which is the Dionysian and uh, I think if you look at history as a whole you find that both of them are subject to perversion especially when they become ruling class ideologies so you find some really nasty Apollonian type civilizations and some really nasty Dionysian type civilizations and you find some very good civilizations of both of those types too. So I don't think you can you draw a line and say the Dionysian is good and the Apollonian is bad or the Apollonian is good and the Dionysian is bad. Uh, these seem to be part of a dialectic, both of which are necessary for our evolution as I see it. Uh, is that quite what you were asking? Oh, good. Uh, next question. Well, yeah, what comes after the information age? That's, that's the kind of question that has perplexed me a lot in the last 10 years. When I start projecting forward, 
the scientific breakthroughs that I feel fairly confident about. When I reach about the year 2004, my mind goes blank. Uh, I, I can't imagine what happens uh, beyond a certain point. Uh, things are moving so fast that uh, it gets harder and harder. You, you reach a point where it seems that uh, all the utopian fantasies of the past are going to come true. That is assuming we don't screw things up and really wreck the planet first. Uh, and uh, what happens after that? This is the kind of question I keep wondering about. Obviously, uh, one of the things that's going to happen is that uh, we're going to have genetic engineering, whether people, uh, whether conservatives object to it or not. It's an interesting field for research. The possibilities are enormous. I think one thing that might happen is if it turns out that we cannot extend human lifespan beyond a certain point, let's say we can double it to 140, triple it to, uh, uh, raise it to 400, but it can't go beyond that. And we, uh, everybody uh, finds out definitely there's no gimmicks, there's no ways of getting around it. 400 years is human lifespan, that's all we can have. Then the next thing will be, well, let's, let's genetically engineer a new type of human being who can live longer than that. And that will be our gift to our posterity to give them an indefinitely long lifespan if ours has to remain limited. And that's the kind of genetic engineering experiments I'm sure are going to be done. Uh, and uh, in, in quantum physics, I have a very strong hunch uh, based on conversations with physicists uh, and teaching seminars with physicists in various places. Uh, we are very soon going to learn how to access the zero-point energy. And the zero-point energy is uh, derived from Heisenberg's equations. And it seems that when we, when we find a way to access the zero-point energy, we will have a uh, so damn much energy that everything that's happened in previous history will seem picayune by comparison. One physicist I know named Jack Sarfati has calculated that uh, when we access the zero-point energy, we will be able to extract from one cubic centimeter, one cubic centimeter, tiny little bit of pure vacuum, we'll be able to extract from that enough energy to run all the factories that now exist for the next 15 trillion trillion years. Now that's a hell of a lot of energy. And if you got two cubic, if you got two cubic centimeters, you got twice as much energy as that. And we've got a lot more. We got hundreds of cubic, we got millions of cubic centimeters to work with. So I think we're approaching the level where we'll have so much energy that all the cries about an energy shortage of the 1970s will seem like uh, a comedy in retrospect. Uh, not only that, but leaving aside quantum matters, uh, Bucky Fuller calculated in the 70s uh, the, the known energies that we can access, not including zero-point energy in quantum mechanics, known energies that we can access. If you add them all up, it, it turns out that we're now accessing less than one-fourth of a uh, hundredth of one percent of all of those energies. 99.9999975% of all the available energy on this planet is not being used at present. Mostly because the people who have the economic clout can't see a way to make a profit out of accessing those energies. Uh, Carl Hess has a solar-powered house in Virginia, but the monopolies keep putting ads in the papers and magazines telling us we can't have solar power yet. It'll take 40 years more of research. The reason they're doing that is it will take 40 years more of research for them to figure out how to put a meter between the sun and us so they can charge us for it. 
And so most of the energy available is not being used yet. It will be used when the petroleum starts running out and people are really desperate. Yes, your question. Um, I just wanted to comment on the Dionysian thing. It seems to me that, uh, that warfare has had a great impact on our giant pieces. since 1990. World War I and II brought us into flight, and to an extent brought us into space, mechanized the... Uh, yeah, that's that's what's known among mystics as a dark saying. It's, it's kind of it's kind of uncomfortable to think about the, those interconnections. Uh, I just touched on that briefly when I pointed out after the doubling of knowledge in 1750, we had all those revolutions, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and all the subsequent revolutions. Uh, those things brought in a great new age of democracy, or as the Marxists would say, bourgeois democracy. But they brought in the Bill of Rights and a lot of civil liberties traditions I find very wonderful, and I'm very glad we got them. If you look what the world was like before we had those traditions, you wouldn't want to go back there. And yet those revolutions all involve bloodshed. They all involve people killing one another. Uh, this is the dark side of history, and uh, all I can say, I haven't resolved that in my head philosophically yet. It's a perpetual paradox to me, and that's why there's so much irony in my writings. The only thing I can say is what George Burns said as God. In, in, in God, too, when the little girl asks him why there are so many bad things in the world, he says, well, I still haven't figured out a way to make something with only one side. Which is sort of the Taoist outlook. Yes? A device for selling books. Like all writers, I am eager to sell my books. But whenever people say, do you do this just to sell books, I get this weird feeling that, Jesus, if I, I wish I knew how to sell books. I mean, if I, if I really knew how to sell books, I'd be a lot richer than I am. No, I don't, I don't do anything to sell books. I hope my books will sell, but while I'm writing the books, I am carried along by other processes uh, that involve the two sides of the brain working together in the conscious and the unconscious, and I never know what's going to come out until it's finished. That's what's known as the creative process. If you knew what you were doing, it wouldn't be creative. It would just be rote work. Um, most of, one of the reasons I write about conspiracies so much is... Uh, because I am interested in different levels of thinking, and I, I have observed that many people don't know the difference between an assertion and an argument. And so I have written my books using conspiracy theories and other gimmicks to make clear the difference between an assertion and an argument. Uh, so that if you accept things as assertions, and you turn the pages, you find a little bit later they're just assertions. They're, they're not, there's no evidence for them whatsoever. I would, like, I would like the readers of my books to come out, if they read enough of them, with a clear idea of what's an assertion and what's an argument. And then beyond that, if they can see the difference between a legal argument 
and a philosophical argument, they will have gone a little further. And if they can see the difference between a scientific argument and a philosophical argument, they will have gone a little further. And then when they can distinguish between a scientific proof, a philosophical proof, a legal proof, and a bland, a bland assertion like, God told me to tell you, uh, then, they, then, then, they, then they will have achieved a certain increase in intelligence and I will feel proud of my work. And that's what I'm trying to do in bringing up controversial subjects, is teach people to look at controversial subjects in a clear way. As the, uh, you know, uh, professional conspiracy buffs, they put together uh, ten statements on a page. Uh, one of them may have uh, some validity, the others are pure assertion, and they get away with this because most people don't know how to tell an assertion from an argument. Every lawyer knows this. You get people in court and you try to restrict them to plain facts, and they think the judge and the lawyers are conspiring against them because they can't insert all their prejudices into the record like they're accustomed to doing in ordinary conversation. Not that the legal system is a model of clarity, but most people aren't even equipped to deal with that. If they try to deal with scientific questions, they'd be even more aghast. Most people just have no concept of how foggy their own thinking is and how much emotionalism and prejudice is leading them around all the time. And I do find it appalling, uh, conspiracy, a lot of conspiracy buffs take advantage of that. Uh, I, I lived through the McCarthy era, and uh, one of my friends was... Uh, and the 1960s accused of being involved in the Kennedy assassination, and he went crazy because of that. And I am a very firm believer in that part of the Old Testament which says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And I have a real repugnance for people who make wild and reckless charges. So that's why I keep coming back to conspiracy theories. Next question. I was wondering if there was a chair up here. No, I'll sit here. My question was about medicine and health. In the past, doctors have tried to make us well, and we've waited around for them to do that. In the future, I think we will just change our own lives and start approaching our own health and let doctors just go do their own thing. Well, my first, my first comment on that is, uh, as I said earlier, scientists uh, are human beings, too. And I, I think one of the most important things that's happening at present is scientists are learning that they're human beings and are learning to see more clearly how their prejudices can deceive them, too. It doesn't just happen to lay people. And I think a classic example of that is the fact that homeopathic medicine in this country has virtually been extinguished. You can hardly find homeopathic physicians. People who go to homeopathic physicians are regarded as eccentric or desperate or something like that. And yet in England, homeopathic medicine is just as respectable as allopathic medicine, the kind of medicine we have here. 
Uh, why is it uh, in one country you have one, uh, one type of medicine, allopathic, and in England you got a choice. You can use either allopathic or homeopathic, and it's not considered weird. This happens to be a historical accident. It happened because the royal family happened to believe in homeopathic medicine, so the allopathic doctors could not conspire to make that look like a crank movement and drive it underground as they did with homeopathic medicine here. And the same thing is happening, you know, for years we believed the Orient was backwards compared to us, so nobody studied Chinese medicine. Now acupuncture and many other types of Chinese medicine are becoming better known. So I, I think as far as the paradigm changing, the, par the change has already started to happen and it's going to happen faster. Uh, uh, people are getting more open-minded and more willing to try alternatives and that's going to force the medical profession itself to become more open-minded or they're going to lose more and more clients. More and more people tend to go to herbalists or, uh, or body workers or, or uh, postural integration therapists or uh, try, try alternatives and it quite, quite often makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, I, I, I am a bitter opponent of either or thinking and easy, uh, easy dichotomies. If A is right, B must be wrong. I don't like that kind of thinking at all. I think there's a great deal of value in orthodox American medicine. I think people who never go to a never go to an MD may be running serious risks. I'm in favor of trying everything and see what works best. I think that's the real that's really the emerging paradigm is open-mindedness rather than saying either this or that. We used to believe in this, now we won't believe any of it. We'll try the exact opposite. The universe doesn't seem to work that way. Generally, the truth turns out to be not either A or B, but something that transcends both A and B and includes them. I think Hegel noticed that before me, actually. That's the dialectic. Uh, next question. Yes. Um, back to the immortality thing in medicine in general, um, at the risk of sounding like a Marxist, do you think that, um, do you think that, this, that these life extension techniques will be made available to the common people or those who can afford I don't see anything wrong with sounding like a Marxist. I often sound like a Marxist myself. Uh, my attitude is use every reality tunnel where it's useful. I, I find Marxism very useful in analyzing a lot of phenomena. I find Freudianism very useful too. I, I use whatever model seems best for each case. I find most cases I understand a lot more if I look at it through four models instead of just through one. And I generally use the Marxist model as one of my four for thinking of most things. Uh, but uh, your, your question is what I think Marx would have called vulgar Marxism. Pardon me. Marx did, Marx did coin that phrase himself. Uh, there, there is an assumption in there that they will keep something away from us. That is based on the idea that they are smarter than us. I don't, I, don't, I don't accept that. I regard myself and my friends as the real power elite. I don't think anybody is smarter than us or going to get anywhere faster than us. And so I don't worry about those mighty figures who are tougher and smarter and shrewder and are going to keep everything to themselves. Because I just think I happen to know the smartest scientists on the planet. And I'm going to hear about life extension before most people do. 
and I'm going to spread the word as fast as I can. Meanwhile, I think that field will turn out to be very much like automobiles or computers or most other things in modern technology. Henry Ford was the first one to discover you make a hell of a lot more by making cheap cars and selling them to everybody than you do by making expensive cars and selling them only to millionaires. And that's why there are so many cheap computers around now, because that knowledge is spread beyond the automobile industry. As soon as life extension uh, technology is, uh, is achieved the next, uh, in a laboratory, the next thing they'll do is find out how cheap they can sell it. Because you make a lot more by selling to 8 billion people on the planet than you'll make by selling it to 20 billionaires. And so I'm not really worried about that scenario. Yes? I, I have some problem with any notion of them at all. In fact, the more we think of everybody as us, we're trying to Yes, I, I agree absolutely. I think we should think of the human race as one family. I just happen to think that uh, my particular section is the smartest part of the family, but that's... Uh, <laughs> yes? Given uh, what you said about political stupidity and about the information age that's coming up, can any kind of political structure or power lead survive the upcoming information explosion? Well, I don't think so. I think, they're, I think they're all going to collapse. I don't know what's going to replace them. I'm still working on that problem. But it seems to me every existing political system and every existing political theory is based on assumptions that are, well, some of them go back 2,000 years, some of them go back 6,000 years, some of them go back to when America was an agricultural nation uh, before the invention of the automobile. There are hardly any political theories that are contemporary with 1986. The people who are trying to think of a political theory contemporary with 1986, like Marilyn Ferguson uh, and uh, FMS Fandieri, uh, come up with wild uh, scenarios which I, I don't think are going to be uh, anything like what will emerge. I think what will emerge will be a synergetic product that astonishes all of us. But it will be much more libertarian than anything we've had in the past. Uh, for two reasons. People are getting more literate all over the world. No, more than two reasons. Literacy is spreading faster and faster. There are more and more university graduates everywhere. It's happening, you know, in the United States, 4% were university graduates in 1900. Now it's around 60%. And the same thing is happening in the rest of the world at a slower rate. Literacy is spreading into all the parts of the third world where everybody was illiterate 20 years ago. You got increasing literacy. So we're getting more and more literacy, more and more education, more and more communication, and at the same time, uh, these Jeffersonian 18th century ideas are getting around more and more, and the consciousness revolution, modern psychology, the I-squared function, learning how to change your own nervous system is getting around more and more. So you're getting more and more people who demand the right to choose and demand options and choices and demand not to be given orders all the time. And so I think the authoritarian structures will find it harder and harder to govern the people of the future. They just won't know how to control uh, the population of the year, 10, 20, the, the year 2010. By 2010, I think the human race will be ungovernable. At the point where government breaks down, the only alternative to chaos is intelligent negotiation. And if you look up the entry under my name and who's who, when nowadays they allow you to add a philosophical comment after your biography, my philosophical comment is let us all study the art of negotiation.
I think that's the most important art to learn for the future, because less and less will be decided by force, more and more will be decided by, co by negotiation. We should all learn to be good negotiators. Ah, next question. Well, I think what has kept them, if we must talk that way, what has kept them from blowing us up is uh, John von Neumann. Uh, John von Neumann uh, designed uh, the first programmable computer, and then he invented game theory, mathematical game theory, which he then showed could be applied to war games. And I think the reason we're here tonight, uh, the reason there's life on Earth, uh, 40, um, 41 years after Hiroshima is because uh, both the sides in the Cold War keep running their favorite scenarios through their computers. Can we beat them with this technique? And the computers, which are uh, not politically prejudiced or partisan, uh, play out the war game and say, no, you can't beat them with that technique. With that technique, you'll get trashed too. So then they go back to the drawing board and calculate for another five years, how can we get the jump on them? And they feed this to the computers, and the computers say, no, that way you will not win either. That way you will be, you will be killed along with them. And that's why we're still here. Uh, and I think that's what's keeping us alive. Uh, the, the more they analyze war games with scientific techniques, the more they realize what Einstein and Bertrand Russell and uh, all 12 intelligent people on the planet realized in 1945, which is that there are no winners in a nuclear war. I think that message will eventually get through, and I even suspect that it is beginning to get through. I think some of the recent negotiations at Geneva show a slight sense that they're not faking so much that they are looking for it. They are trying to learn how to negotiate with each other instead of just bluff each other. Maybe. Maybe I'm being over-optimistic. I'm often accused of that. Next question. Do you know uh, what's happened to that software that Timothy Leary was co-authoring you said last year? Yeah, uh, the, I heard it would be out in November. Uh, the latest news I heard was that, was that it would be out in March. This is March 1st. Keep inquiring at your computer store. That's all I can say. What was the other question? I don't know about that. I haven't heard about that. I saw a great tarot deck by Salvador Dali recently, though. Well, any of you who are into collecting tarot decks, some people do that as a hobby, make sure you get the Dali deck. It's one of the, one of the most mind-blowing. And I, I'm not being paid a commission by the Salvador Dali estate. That's an unsolicited testimonial. Uh, next question. The Hopi prophecies? No, I don't know. Well, I don't. I know. I don't. Uh, I, I don't know anything about uh, the, the Hopi prophecies. I. I'm not even very good at Nostradamus. I read Nostradamus, and I, I can't make head or tail out of it, and I can't tell whether he's right or wrong. And uh, that, type of thing, uh, that, that type of thing seems to fall into the area of assertion that I was talking about before. It has nothing to do with argument, uh, legal, philosophical, scientific, or any type of argument I recognize. It's just assertion. And assertion can come true. 
if, if I assert I am, I am going to leave here and have a drink very soon, I can make that assertion come true. But that's not an argument. And, uh, I, you know, an assertion can come true, but nobody knows until it does come true. I may decide not to leave here and have a drink. I may decide to leave here and have a cup of coffee. Um, assertions you can't say anything about. It's a question of take it or leave it. You can't prove them or disprove them. So I don't, I don't know. Well, I'll see. If, uh, I don't know. I, I, I asked them last night, would they please come to the Denver uh, lecture too and, and bring all their friends. I said, if you can get a bigger demonstration, I'd get more publicity and sell more books, and I'd be very grateful to you. And I, I think that may have discouraged them. I think their goal is not to help me sell books, so they decided to boycott me instead. That's the trouble with being honest, you see. You always end up screwing yourself that way. I should have told them, please don't come to Denver. I'm terrified. If you expose me, I'll lose all my fans. And then they would have showed up with the... Then they would have got all their friends together and they would have had a big enough demonstration to get on television. And uh, well, uh, Next question, yes, back there. Uh, how do you answer those people who say that maybe it's premature for us to spend so much on uh, space exploration when we really haven't learned how to live on this planet yet in terms of desertification and more and more species becoming extinct? We really haven't learned how to live on Well, I don't think, uh, I, I think that's uh, based on a false dichotomy. We've already, I mean, we've already got part of our technology in outer space right now. And the idea that leaving the planet means leaving the planet is oversimplified. How many people are going to leave the planet perpetually? I think uh, in the next 40 years, a lot of people will be living and working in space part-time, but they'll probably return to the planet. Uh, the idea that it's like saying, why, why leave Europe and go to the United States? on a lecture tour. Uh, shouldn't you solve the problems of Europe first? Uh, I do everything I can to solve the problems of Europe. I lecture wherever they ask me to lecture over there. Uh, but I don't feel I'm deserting Europe when I spend a few weeks visiting the United States. I don't think Europe and the United States are that far separate. They're, not, they're part of one system. And I don't think Earth is that separate from the rest of the solar system. It's part of one system. And the idea that leaving Earth means abandoning Earth. Actually, leaving Earth to use interplanetary technology will benefit Earth tremendously by bringing us cheaper power, more power. You can, in Colorado, you got all the sunlight you need for solar power, but in a place like Ireland, uh, solar power is totally uh, a lost cause there because it's damp and rainy most of the year. But Ireland can have as much solar power as Colorado if it's beamed down from outer space. And uh, I really think that uh, uh, the surface of a planet is not the best place for a growing technology. Uh, uh, technology gets uh, increasingly risky and it should be moved away from human beings. If we got to have it on this planet, I, I, which I don't think we do, but if we did have to keep technology on this planet, I think there should be laws that the people who own the factories have to live within uh, a half a block of the factories. I think if everybody who owns shares in atomic energy plants had to live in a circle around the atomic energy plants, uh, then they, they, they might be a lot more careful. Uh, but meanwhile, I think it's much safer to move heavy technology off the planet entirely. And that would give the planet a chance to become one great big nature park. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, 
where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, where to start, huh? There was uh, a lot of ground covered just now, so it's hard to decide what to comment on first. For example, I was intrigued by his comment about zero-point energy. And while that is a subject that doesn't quite fit in our normal discussions here in the salon, I do want to note that the field of unlocking some of the laws of physics dealing with dark energy has uh, become very exciting lately. And if this is a a topic you want to learn more about, a a good place to begin is uh, obviously Wikipedia, where you can uh, find quite a few external resources and uh, links about that subject. But one of the most important things you can do right now, uh, that is if you're interested in living a little longer than the 66 or so years that is the current world average lifespan, and that kind of stops me in my track because uh, I'm 66 now, so I guess I'm uh, already lived the average current world lifespan. Uh, but anyhow, for you, uh, a good thing to do would be to begin paying attention to what is going on with the International Codex Commission, which is, uh, of course, being enforced by the good old World Trade Organization. And unless you've uh, been on another planet for the last few years, uh, you've most likely heard about the soon-to-be-enforced ban on all vitamin and uh, mineral food supplements. Now, while I still find it hard to believe that these uh, knuckleheads are actually going to let the regulations go into effect at the end of next year, nothing uh, can surprise me much anymore. And uh, why should you worry about the availability of food supplements, you might ask? Well, uh, one reason is that recent studies have shown that the average nutrient value for most fruits and vegetables uh, found in U.S. supermarkets has gone down by over 50% since the middle of the last century. And while uh, modern agriculture is good at producing large quantities of food, it isn't very good at raising food that uh, contains all of the vitamins and other nutrients required for long and healthy lives. Now, I'm sure that I'm not the only one who remembers the uh, time back when MDMA was still legal. But uh, back then, we all knew that it would soon be banned. And uh, so those were great times for ecstasy dealers because everybody was stocking up on it before the uh, ban became effective. So uh, maybe it would be wise to begin stocking up on vitamin D, B, C, and uh, a few other supplements that will be critical for anyone who wants to extend their normal lifespan like uh, Bob Wilson was just talking about. At least the uh, psychedelic community shouldn't be very deeply affected by this ban because, uh, heck, we've been buying our pharmaceuticals from the underground uh, all of our lives. In other words, uh, we won't be needing to go to blackmarketvitamins.com because uh, we've already got our connections. Uh, So don't be surprised in a few years when the U.S. News is reporting on an outbreak of street dealers selling vitamin C to school children. (laughs) You may be laughing at that statement, uh, but be careful that you aren't laughing too soon. And uh, just in case, maybe you uh, should start looking for your underground vitamin connection now before uh, they are added to the list of uh, beneficial substances that the screwheads in Washington and in our state capitals want to keep away from you. For your own good, of course, uh, and maybe also for the good of the pharmaceutical companies who are bribing our politicians night and day. Okay, that's the end of my political rant, uh, at least for today. I guess good old Bob Wilson got me going when he was talking about a Club of Rome prophecy that uh, said everything was going to hell in a handbasket. 
And although this uh, talk was recorded in the mid-1980s, uh, it now appears that he got his facts correct, but uh, was just a little off on timing. Timing, uh, you know, is everything. And uh, several of our fellow Swanners uh, over the past year or so have uh, offered to give our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog a more modern look and feel. And uh, I've visited most of the example sites you all have sent me uh, to give me an idea of what they can do to help. But uh, I have to admit that uh, every one of them looked uh, a lot better than our current site does. But for right now, the, the timing isn't just right because uh, even though I wouldn't have to do much to help upgrade the design, it uh, still would take some of my time, and that's the only thing I've run low on lately. I'm already uh, behind on my deadline of uh, finishing my new book by the end of November, and until that project is completed, I just uh, can't undertake anything else, uh, including email, I'm afraid. So uh, until I get this little uh, six-year-long project finished, uh, I'm not going to have the time to do much else. And uh, yes, I realize that I'm setting myself up in the event that no one likes my new book, but uh, that's not why I'm writing it. So uh, I hope you all understand how much I appreciate your offers to help with the website, and I do plan on getting back to this project sometime next year. Hopefully uh, my filing system will hold together long enough to be able to find your offers to help uh, when the time comes, but uh, please know that I am very appreciative of your offers. Now, uh, one last thing I want to touch on, and it's something we haven't talked about much here, but I, I know it's of interest to many of our fellow saloners because uh, you also listen to my friend KMO on his uh, Sea Realm podcasts, uh, which in my humble opinion are among the best interview programs around on any media. The topic is the uh, possibility of a technological singularity, and uh, there's a conference dealing with that topic that uh, some of our fellow saloners might be interested in. So let me just uh, read a short announcement about uh, what is called the Singularity Summit, uh, and it's going to be held on October 25th from 9 to 5, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, at the uh, Montgomery Theater in San Jose, California. And uh, their announcement says... Throughout the past half-century, the field of artificial intelligence, AI, has been progressing steadily. As progress continues, it is likely that the problem-solving abilities of AI systems will approach and then surpass the brightest human minds. So, if so, it is also likely these symptoms will acquire the ability to improve their own programming without human assistance. The development of such systems should be approached with considerable forethought. The prospects and implications of powerful machine intelligence has been called a singularity by analogy to singularities in mathematical physics, particularly black holes. This analogy invokes the concept of the event horizon that shields the singularity from outside observation. This point of view is informed by the notion that it is difficult for us to predict what will be done by intellects that exceed our own mental ability. We consider it plausible that advanced AI systems may arrive in the next few decades, and the policies and precedents we set at the present will have significant influence over what will happen in the future. We think it is time for AI researchers and engineers to work together with society at large to craft a roadmap for the development of this technology to bring about a desirable and beneficial future. 
And the list of speakers who will be attending this conference is uh, quite impressive. They include uh, Peter Diamonds, the uh, founder of the XPRIZE Foundation, uh, Esther Dyson, Ray Kurzweil, uh, the chief technical officer of Intel, uh, the co-founder of PayPal, and, uh, of course, Werner Vinge, who is uh, not only a renowned uh, science fiction author, uh, he's also the originator in 1993 of the concept of a technological singularity. And the announcement uh, goes on to say, The Singularity Summit is the premier dialogue on the singularity. The first Singularity Summit was held at Stanford University in 2006 to further understanding and discussion about the singularity concept and the future of human technological progress. It was founded as a venue for leading thinkers to explore the subject, whether scientist, enthusiast, or skeptic. Since 2006, the scope of this dialogue has expanded dramatically. In 2008, the singularity now has entered mainstream consideration. IEEE Spectrum, a sober and mainstream technology publication, issued a special report on the subject. And Intel Chief Technical Officer Justin Ratner remarked that, We're making steady progress toward the singularity, during his keynote to 2,000 people at the Intel Developer Forum. What was once a relatively unknown concept is now being discussed in corporate boardrooms. And uh, you can learn more about this conference at www.singinst.org. Uh, maybe there will be a recording or two that comes out of this conference that uh, either KMO or I can play for you later this year. But in any event, I hope uh, someone who attends it will uh, tell us about the highlights. I have... Uh, mixed emotions when it comes to this topic. Uh, I guess you could uh, call me an undecided, although uh, Werner Vinge would call me a gradualist. Uh, uh, of course, uh, <laughs> Werner thinks that uh, Ray Kurzweil is a gradualist, too. Uh, so that should give you an idea of the uh, level of discourse to expect among this uh, interesting group of speakers who will be together on that day. And now, uh, as always, I'll close this podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that is also where you'll uh, find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.